Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Good morning, Peg. Morning. Very, very early where you are. It is. The, uh, the moon is just setting. It's quite dark outside and cool. I suppose we should invite everyone to begin to populate the chat with things that they might have for us today. And we'll um, well, see what comes along. <clears throat> Just read each one. You want to read one? I'll read one. Yeah. Um... I think easiest thing is just leave the chat window open in the on the side. We'll, we'll do, our, do our best. We'll see how we go. Uh -huh. So let's see. I think it's probably just important to say to um, chat everyone and not Flint or Peg so that both Peg and Flint both see the messages. And at any point, Flint and Peg, if you want to ask people to pause while you read, because it'll keep flipping up and down on you. Okay. then that's probably the best way to catch up. <laughs> okay, great. Um, okay, um, this question is, a student asked in all earnestness, knowing that the nature of our being is connectedness and love, and at the same time, we are bogged down by disconnections of emotional afflictions, loneliness, and fear. How do I respond with compassion to my 16-year-old daughter's suffering and self-harm? If she doesn't have the language and experience to name this bogged down suffering and pain, how do I help her see her Buddha nature when she is shut down and unwilling to connect with me? If the first of the four steps is to expose, which is her greatest fear, and she won't speak about it, how do I respond creatively and immeasurably as Guogu writes to this suffering? That's a very profound and tender question. Yeah. <clears throat> it's powerfully personal and at the same time in some way it's what you and I Peg face each time everyone comes to see us in practice discussion as each person comes with uh, an all earnestness asking if connectedness and love is everything, why do I experience this kind of pain that I don't seem to be able to get beyond? So it also, we can feel it as our own care for, for students. Well, and the disconnect and unwillingness on the part of the other that you're really wanting to be connected with. And to balance the invitation a gentle invitation to turn toward um, that doesn't feel violent or too frightening and yet is clear and important and necessary. In this situation, I mean, we could also spend a lot of time speaking just about um, a loving mother and her dear, you know, adolescent, uh, which we can certainly say <clears throat> Uh, a few things, but but one of the essential pieces, um, I think, with anyone that we meet who's struggling deeply, uh, no matter what our response, as skillful as we can bring it, if it's not within the container of full, um, essentially loving presence. Uh, which is the same as our um, manifestation of Buddha nature or what we touch in um, silent illumination, then whatever, whatever attempts we, we bring to try to help uh, won't be quite as helpful. As the first, just uh, when she says, um, <clears throat> how do I respond with compassion? 
um, being just this moment's compassion's way, how do we become compassion's way? The, we, uh, the, the hows are a longer uh, question, but I don't know about you, but even sitting here now, that's my intention. Right. And this is the kind of question that we can continue to open up, of course, more and more, but it's the perfect question to start with because it invites us to, to arrive in this way. Uh-huh. <clears throat> let's, let's look at the ne- next one just so we can touch on it. Go. Is there some more you want to say? Um, I think the um, willingness to name what your own experience is you know, I can see that you are in pain, and I guess I'm not sure how I can best support you. Mm-hmm. And um, I can see that you are not wanting me to be involved in certain ways, but I'm wondering if there's some way that would be helpful for you. I guess, you know, just naming sort of the process of um, your aspiration to support and connect. Mm-hmm. and the invitation that kind of invitation but but without um without pressure associated with it because that's obviously what's um what's not going to get a great response right and to maintain one's own uprightness along with the vul- your own vulnerability yeah you know just oh i feel that way too and without just being kind of cool, and there's a combination that we we train ourselves to remain upright and yet vulnerable and um, somewhat transparent as well. Well, when the Buddha listed the sources of suffering, sickness, old age, death, not being with what you want, having to be with what you do, he missed one really exquisite source of suffering, which is the suffering of your children. <clears throat> And I think that's sometimes as we suffer the greatest, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, when we are uh, unable to help in the ways that we want to. Yeah, one of the most exquisite kinds of um, helplessness. Yeah. Pain. <clears throat> In the next question, it says it's sometimes hard to distinguish between being caught in the self-centered dream and striving for excellence in work, feeling good about accomplishments, making the best Italian dish you can for friends, etc., or even acknowledging your own Buddha nature, like the mirror on the altar. What are some signposts to alert and guide us? Yeah. This distinguish being caught in the self-centered dream and um, it says, um, accomplishment mm-hmm. and I think the first step would be to play around with the difference between accomplishment and aspiration yeah and the um that sense of for me um the tip-off is embodied it's a kind of contraction so there's a kind of wholehearted effortless outpouring of energy we're making a meal for our beloved friends um, if there's a contraction in it anywhere um, we're striving um, we are ha- have an attachment to some outcome. We'll first feel it in our bodies. <clears throat> Gee, I hope they like this dish. I hope it really uh, wows them, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, so for me, it's always a return to the body. Is this an effortless outpouring, a flow of creative energy, or is it something I'm grasping or trying to hold on to, um, or some outcome I'm attached to? Um, and I think. Um, I, at least for me, I notice that first in my body. There's some tightness in the jaw or uh, clenching in the stomach or neck tension um, as I, you know, really try hard um, in this kind of contracted way. That's a a great tip off. And some of us also begin with um, the internal narrative. Yeah. Uh, You hear those different parts worrying it's the self-referential um, withdrawal or contraction which you can feel in your body 
which is different than just a, a self-reflective, like you said, uh, what am I noticing? There's the self-reflection, which is different than the self-referencing contraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> different from the self-centered dream. Yes, a wholehearted uh, longing to, um, for example, um, embody one's vows. Yeah. It's not the same as, uh, I, I'm going to get this, but we feel it. Like, for example, if you do roles in the Zendo, you'll think, oh, I want to do this perfectly. And you'll be really anxious about it. Um, <laughs> I said, Joel's going like this. Okay. <laughs> um, and there are ways to, to do it, um, uh, certainly with, without that. But I think we have to investigate those parts that come up to begin to feel this uh, distinguishing. At least that's been my experience in training. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember the first time that I um, was the doan and you were the doshi. And I think uh, Colin was the only other person in the zendo, you know. And I started hitting the bells for the nine bows so fast that Flint was like, looked like a some kind of a marionette or something. And Colin had to stop me like this, which is the same as yelling in the zendo, you know. So I, I was... I was just so worried about doing a good job, you know, and, and afterwards I was weeping and weeping and weeping. And I went into the teacher and she said, well, are you weeping because you were embarrassed? There was nobody else in this endo, you know? And I said, no, no, it wasn't that I was embarrassed. And, and she said, well, are you weeping because you made a mistake? And I said, no, no, it's not that. And I said, and she said, well, what is it? And I said, because I broke something beautiful. And so it felt to me like the service was this, you know, beautiful container and I had just completely destroyed it. <laughs> so well, you, heard me, you heard me tell the story of the same thing when I was in Zazen one afternoon at San Francisco Zen Center and uh, someone came in and whispered into Blanche's ear and she was going to be the doshi. And so I was, I was the doan, as you had been in this situation. And she announces that one of her family members had just died and she just received, and we were going to do a memorial service. And suddenly I was going to do the bells in the Daihishindarani, which, you know, is very complicated. And I had no idea. <laughs> and so I did the best I could and the bells were at the wrong times. And I winced, but of course she continued. And afterwards she came up to me and she said, the bells were fine. The face was extra. Yeah, I, I think this is probably a lifelong effort to distinguish between being caught in the self-centered dream and just wholehearted effort. Yeah, I think so. It's a really good question. Mm-hmm. What do you see from Amanda there? What are some ways that we individually and collectively can contribute to the daily operation and healthy future growth of our Sangha? What are our needs in practical terms? Oh, this is such a great question. Yeah, that's a big one. And it's, it's sort of an ongoing inquiry, right? Because those things change. Um, I think starting out, the most important thing that people can do is start to learn roles because this is a great way to support and connect with the Sangha um, and, um, and to stay engaged and interested in what, um, what the activities are. So part of it is just showing up. That's the best way to support um, Sangha, I think, is through your showing up and your steadfast practice that provides a core of continuity. And, um, and then there, um, there's a kind of a map on the, um, on the website of these circles of engagement. And it shows the different ways that people move from the periphery where they first contact the Sangha, start to get more involved and do daily practice, learn roles start to get more involved. If they're more committed to the community, they start, start to be um, you know, good potential candidates for councils, which have um, a lot of programmatic responsibility for the Sangha. So there's a kind of, there's a map that sort of shows those, uh, those concentric circles of um, engagement. And that's probably the best way to see the different um, opportunities to support the the regular operation of the Sangha. Best thing is to start out with is to show up consistently. I would underline that with several marks. You know, there's 
we have all kind of ideas and opinions and philosophies and organizational structures. But if we don't just show up wholeheartedly with uh, an aspiration to support and encourage each other, then they're just good ideas. So what you're saying is exactly exactly on track. You know, when you said, I think it was yesterday when you said um, that we don't belong to the Sangha, the Sangha belongs to us. It's something to take care of. It's like that beautiful things you don't want to break. Yeah. Uh, but it, but just simply showing up and engaging and, um, and doing the, not to show up to run things, show up to just engage with others and serve things. Mm-hmm. I, I remember a moment when, um, and I know you felt this too, but the first time I felt it really strongly, I was when I was in Japan with the practice group there, the, the days were really, really busy working mainly helping Huitsu clean up this temple that he had by himself. And I remember walking across the Buddha Hall at one point during the day, um, joyfully thinking what was next that I could do. And that was that was a total difference from what I just felt um, most of the time, which is, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Or how, how does this go? I just could feel myself moving with what, what was needed. Yeah. And so uh, individually, uh, this is important, but collectively, it, it keeps things alive. Mm-hmm. You don't know, you don't always know what the solutions are, but if you're, if you're working together with a warm heart, they'll show up, you know. Yeah, and in the beginning, it's just important to sit. It's really, really important to sit and be with the Sangha. Um, and and then, like, you know, remember, um, uh, Nelda was saying that it had made a difference when I just said, just continue mm-hmm. and just keep coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing reveals itself to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then check with others, like, how's it going? Does this seem like a good idea? <laughs> just, I mean, that's what you and I have done. Yeah. We didn't set out to create this stuff we we did roles even when the sitting groups when i began and you began our individual sitting groups all we did was set up a little altar in some funky way and have some semblance of some service or something and sitting and read a little something hold it together with forms right because we needed it and, and other people came and they seemed to want it too. Yeah. Yeah. And we see people come and go in the Sangha and return and go away. And um, some people go away and never come back. Um, so the people who continue are really, really crucial. Mm-hmm. We don't have priests. We don't have residents. It's not a monastery. So it's the core people who come consistently and sit together that make the whole process work and as you're saying that that happens with bodies bodies come and bodies sit together and bodies ring bells and it's the embodiment of together practice makes a difference i see the the next how can we integrate moments of sinal illumination without grasping We've, we've talked about that a little bit I think it's important that it shows up again because it shows up again and again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those um, those moments are so pleasurable. They're so deeply, deeply satisfying um, that it's natural to want more of them. To want, um, and so the grasping mind almost immediately shows up. Like, how can I do this all the time? How can I be like this all the time? How can I? You know, it's gonna show up going to show up <clears throat> and so part of it is just recognizing oh well, there's the clinging mm-hmm. uh, everything is as it is <clears throat> those little glimpses i think are um i always think of them as uh, like little pats of encouragement on the path mm-hmm. we're, on the, we're on going in the right direction you know <laughs> keep going as one says just, just continue mm-hmm. I think of it sometimes it's a little more psychological, but if you think of it in 
sometimes we use the language of internal family systems and so this this part that wants to wants will show up but remember uh, the buddha's teaching suggests that if everything has the nature of a buddha so does every single part that shows up that at its heart is the true self the true nature and as we, it relaxes just like the very first night when you suggest we begin to relax when those parts of us that are grasping relax the little you know pearl in there begins to show up uh, of uh, where is where's buddha nature in the one who's grasping and then you might say oh there is wholehearted aspiration once these burdens of grasping begin to soften it's it's right there so um Anne asks please speak about when i find myself disagreeing with a teacher's teaching mm -hmm. um, i think this is a great gift to a teacher actually um yeah. it's a um, bringing forward that um, doubt or uncertainty or if you can um, maintain um, a respectful orientation then it's a mutual search for what um, uncovers itself in that difference of perspective all you're talking really about is a difference of perspective right so it this is also true for anyone who is different from us or has a different view from us if you understand that it's about the we-ness it's not about i disagree with you but um oh we have different views on this and not and not being um stuck in my view I'm curious, you know, so at that point, you can be curious together, and it's a mutual activity of discovery. So, oh, well, I thought it was like this. That was the way I understood it. Um, and in that way, it doesn't have to be a hostile uh, opposition. Uh, um, it's really more, oh, my understanding is different from what I hear from you, right? Yeah, that's that's very very useful um, because there's a difference between well when when a student comes to me with a big disagreement usually I'm I perk up <laughs> if I can feel that it's that it's born out of curiosity not an agenda to defeat mm. the the person really is curious and then I'm I'm all ears like I want to know because I know it's going to invite me to an edge of my practice I'm going to practice more deeply and also if my agenda isn't to set them right my agenda is to enter into it together so we can find maybe what's more full than either of us would have seen mm -hmm. uh, but there's no assumption that I'm going to be right and the student's going to be wrong the assumption is we're going to enter something together and maybe discover more or deeper or broader than we had before those perspectives open up and now we're practicing together mm -hmm. uh, in the ways that you just you just said there may be special occasions i think if what you recognize is the teacher is doing something unethical or destructive or damaging um, and in that case you you will take probably a stronger stance mm -hmm. And you'll say, this is something I observe that is not in accord with the precepts as I learned them, um, or that I feel is harming someone. Um, and even so, what you want to offer is the opportunity to have a mutual conversation about that um, so that there's the potential that for the person to see maybe something that they hadn't seen or recognize something they hadn't recognized. Um, so it's always in the context of this person's on a path, I'm on a path, I see something that looks dangerous, you know, um, and so I have to speak up, but I'm still going to do so in it from a position of respect. Yeah, and when the person that um, you think might be harmed is you, it can get uh, a personal entangled. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes people will experience I'll say it from the least mature place. My feelings are hurt. Um, which just means you did something that triggered me in some way. Uh, sometimes that is clear, but sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes it's an expression of conditioning. But but the, the teacher's responsibility is to hold the container. But I, I just want to fold in the next question. 
as we continue because it, it what is was or is your most difficult challenge as teacher and how do you deal with that challenge i think this begins to bleed over into some of the bigger challenges where we're uh, confronted in ways that are fraught and that we want to meet uh, fully through the dharma um, but the <clears throat> But some of the struggles we can tell are got a lot of layers. It's complicated. Yeah. What is or what was or is your most difficult challenge as a teacher, and how do you deal with that challenge? <clears throat> I think the for for me, I, I I think this may be true for you, Peg. Well, we'll see that. You know, we can get challenged by, personally, someone has a question, like the former uh, inquiry there, mm -hmm. or, or challenged on what we're teaching. But sometimes there feels, it feels like there's a, I don't know how to, how to say it. Um, behind it, there's a desire to either take me down or take the Sangha down yeah uh, that's sort of killing it's violent yeah and that's the hardest thing <clears throat> and then sometimes it's couched in a narrative that can seem uh rational that's right yeah yeah and um and sometimes it's the um use of woundedness as a weapon mm -hmm. and the outgrowth usually of trauma mm -hmm. yeah but the result is traumatizing yeah as it moves forward and that's a more sticky situation yeah uh, and why we call on our senior students and our counsels and help because it's not sometimes you i can't really hold it alone yeah i think that's right that's been one of the great things about teaching with you is that i feel like at least we have each other, as we say, you know, um, and when, um, when, and this is exceedingly, and I have to reiterate this, this is exceedingly rare, mm -hmm. uh, very, very, very rare. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on it. Um, it's just the thing for me is always <clears throat> watching the well being of the Sangha and people who are, um, characterologically or for whatever reason, creating um, damage in the Sangha is the thing I personally cannot tolerate. Yeah. I can tolerate all kinds of projections onto me or whatever, but the damage in the Sangha is the thing that, um, it's one of the five great karmic catastrophes. That the Buddha taught about. That the Buddha taught about, yeah. Creating a schism in the Sangha. One of the first one of which is murdering your mother, your father, you know, and um, harming a Buddha, and um, and then you know down there is causing a schism in the sangha, and this is a karmic burden you never get out from under. So, so I I, I also feel like this is a, a, um, an extreme emergency because you not only have to protect the Sangha, you have to protect that person from doing something that's going to create this karmic burden for them. <clears throat> so. yeah, I think that's probably the most difficult, but there's another way to read this question I was also is there are difficulties that come to us, but there are difficulties for us from the inside. Oh yeah. And so I think, I mean, we, we you and I have spoken recently about the difficulties that come with, um, aging yeah and and wanting to continue to support our students and care for the sangha and do everything we have attempted to do as best we can and also having to live with uh, limitations and make choices that we know will be uh, some people will be unhappy about like yeah. moving moving yeah um, yeah yeah and um and the, I think the um, tension there is between how we take care of ourselves and how we want to take care of the Sangha. Um, right. And we know we're going to do it 
imperfectly. And that balance won't always feel exactly right to everyone. But uh, also, you know, you and I, sometimes our edges not wanting to let people down, you know. Not wanting to let people down, absolutely. That's... And knowing that it's inevitable that some people will experience that uh, as we live with our limitations. And if we're, if we're fortunate enough to do it at least somewhat skillfully, maybe it can actually model something, which is also part of our job as a teacher. That's true. Mm-hmm. And also, I think um, the thing that heartens me is that we were perceptive about this need and began training people who could help us, you know, and take on more of the activity as our own energy is our, uh, you know. So um, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that we have such committed folks who are perfectly well equipped and trained and have capabilities. Um, that that support this sangha in the ways that they do. In in the next question, I'm not leaving this question, but in the next question about um, reference to Joko's comment, life looks for a channel. Could you reflect on how this applies to her? In some ways, what we anticipated was needing a larger container or a larger channel. So it doesn't come just through you and me. That's right. And, I, and it's a tough one because you and I are, are uh, strong leaders. I, I don't mean uh, demanding, but we brought a lot to the table and together. So it's easy to look just to us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think your ideas of um, developing the councils and some of the ways that you've organizationally done that, because you had more organizational abilities than I did, I think, has really was really marvelous and brilliant. Well, I feel confident because of those the social architectures we put in place in a way that I would not feel confident if we were under the Japanese model. Um, right. That that would I'd be much feel much worse about everything. But mm-hmm. I also feel like um, it was important for me to move so that people could step into these roles in the ways that they really are meant to inhabit them. Mm-hmm. And so that the Sangha can see, oh, the continuity is there. There's continuity of care. That's mm-hmm. the most important thing. Yeah, even if there are disruptions and struggles and things, but that's part of any transition. That's right. It's, and it's both strength and resilience. Mm-hmm. The comment about life looks for a channel. Do you want to say a little bit more of that in a classical way? I think in the um, in Longchenpa's term of the creative intelligence of the universe, this is this continuous ongoing activity of uh, unfolding and unfolding, right? That's happening um, energetically throughout the cosmos, basically. But um, but we are an expression of that. Each one of us is an expression of that life energy, that life force, that um, activity, that creative activity. And so, um, so in a sense, that creative intelligence is always looking for ways to manifest itself and to experience life. So, um, so I think of it in those terms, you know, like that, the expression of that creative intelligence that's always um, uh, moving, changing dynamically, uh, creating and, and, uh, and unfolding things. Um, so... That's and I think we can feel that life asks a little more of us as we, as we inhabit and embody and open, then we can feel the flow move through us, but it becomes less personal and more generative over time too. Uh, there's a phrase you've heard me use, which I had read in something from Richard Rohr, you know, the uh, Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, we, he talks about over time we become what he, he, use a poetic term, uh, a, a riverbed of mercy. Yeah. And so I'd like the idea of a riverbed because it's not the water, it's the space in which it can flow. It can flow, absolutely. Depending on need, you know. And it's, it's uh, and, and merciful, is, like I said, it's a bit poetic and uh, has some feeling tone to it. It's full of care yeah. and willingness, certainly. So um, 
just another way of thinking about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of that African proverb that every time an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. So I sort of talk to people about this. Um, and, I, and I think, yes, it's more like now we become a kind of reservoir um, that uh, people can access of experience, life experience and training and education and so forth. And, uh, and as I said to Flint, we're no longer throwing the books at people. They have to come and ask for them. <laughs> And we're not throwing them at ourselves as much as we did. You know, yeah. That's one thing we should have probably as an um, one special arm of the song is a 12 step program for buying books. You know? yeah, but except we don't want to get better. <laughs> it's uh, interestingly, when I was speaking about poetry and we were talking about books, the next question has to do with the role of uh, art in, mm -hmm. in practice. And throughout, throughout the Buddha history and Zen history, the artistic expression and aesthetic expression has been um, one of those channels. A huge channel for everything from the tea ceremony to poetry to um, architecture to painting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a beautiful expression of that silent illumination. It's a beautiful expression of our practice path. Uh, it's non-linear, non-conceptual. It's embodied. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to make that inso, like Cos made it, with the dynamic vitality and yet the skill of, of a lifetime, uh, demonstrates practice in a way that is silent, and it illuminates something without conceptual thought. And also, as you've taught directly, mindfulness and photography. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, is becoming joyful is how we understand the. Um, we can use a tool, in this case, a camera, or nowadays a phone, uh, which has a camera, <laughs> um, uh, to find ways to express beauty. And I think it's, the other thing is um, one of the ways to understand silent illumination is awe inspired by beauty. Mm -hmm. and art plays in that <clears throat> even just the appreciation of art to recognize the expression that has come through a work of art yes I might offer a construction and then you might be touched by it mm -hmm. or you'll offer something beautiful and I'll be moved mm -hmm. and, and waked by it so and I would also just add that sometimes, like you were talking about service, sometimes that art looks like a dignified bow mm -hmm. or the way one holds uh, the, the striker. I mean, there, there are ways in which there's, an, um, like, in, like in dance, there's a performance aspect of the art too which I say performance, because it's not about performing for, uh, but it's an expression of how practice has come in your body. Mm -hmm. Speaking of photography, the next one from Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> to lead with compassion outwardly feels like less of a struggle than to lead with compassion inwardly. First impulse, why am I a member of this Sangha? I feel fully met. So are we all doing that, what are, what are we all doing that makes that so true and so rare, even in spiritual communities? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. Why am I a member? <laughs> Which is, I think, if not universal, pretty close to universal, <clears throat> excuse me, longing for belonging. Mm -hmm that we all carry, you know, in formation of communities as uh, making sure that people belong is a fundamental aspect of uh, community formation. Yeah, I think being seen and um, deeply accepted just as we are, um, a kind of trustworthy container that um, allows us to learn and grow together. And, and showing up so we can be loved, you yeah. know, show up. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
It's not like you're standing way over there somewhere and you can become a member because people make you the member. Yeah. You have to step into the circle, even if it's a little tippy toe in the beginning. And then the container that you're talking about has to be there to welcome. And I've heard so many people say, gosh, you know, I came to Apamada and as soon as I stepped on the porch or I went into the kitchen or, you know, that's a structural thing, but uh, people met me and were warm. I've heard the same thing uh, for Open Door in Madison and other places. Uh, it's that first warm connection can make a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm thinking of another uh, verse from Hongzhi where he said, step into the center of the circle and wonder. Yes. And we're, we're called, you know, for all different reasons to find our way in. Some of us are called by, well, it doesn't have to be binary, but some of us are called by inspiration. We see something. Uh, Cassie has told this story, so I think I'm not telling anything out of school. She was simply a photographer at a wedding that I was the efficient at. She didn't know anything about Zen or Buddhism or anything. And what she saw she could not see anymore and it wasn't because i did something special it was just the container that she entered in photography that all those years ago uh, now she's still here asking this question so sometimes we see something as inspiring the other thing that brings us in is uh, being brought to our knees yes uh, because nothing <clears throat> happened and you didn't know what else to do i mean yeah. you were already in, but you know what i mean yeah Sometimes by great pain and difficulty, and sometimes by great inspiration, or the combination of the two, we begin to find our way in. And then hopefully there's that container to welcome us when we arrive. And sometimes it starts out as basic curiosity that only gets more mysterious the more you know. <clears throat> How did I get into this? <laughs> <laughs> and where does it go from here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just minding your own business, thinking you might want to meditate so you'll be more relaxed. And then you hear yourself chanting, all my ancient twisted karma from being like, I fully about like, what am I admitting here? <laughs> meditate, you know? Yeah. Take a look at the next one. There's head teachers. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, uh, how do you discern what amount of teaching, guiding, communication, to support the Sangha is healthy for you, and what is too much? Well, we're back to the body. <laughs> yeah. I have a default that is uh, generous and destructive, which is I always want to say yes. <laughs> I think you c carry that too. I, bet you. I always want to say yes. And so I tend to overcommit <laughs> and that can lead to destruction. And then I'm, if I do that continuously, I'm not able to um, offer what I want to offer because then now I'm destroying the thing that I want to offer. Does that make sense? I think it's, um, I think this is really challenging because um, we have a natural, we have a, a bunch of things working at once. We have our vow, um, we have a deep aspiration, um, we have the capacity to see what needs to be done and um, a certain impatience with um, waiting for other people to see that it needs to be done um, and a sense of um, responsibility. So uh, it's very difficult then to say, um, let's let this just fall apart so that people see it needs to be taken care of, mm -hmm. right? Or um, let's let someone fumble around and do it badly um, so that they gradually learn how to do it. You know, like it's very difficult in the teaching role um, to be able to step back enough um, so that people actually can find their way together. That's a little bit like parenting. You, what you would automatically take care of for a much younger child, as you get older, you have to step back and say, well, give it a go. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And the pain yeah. of watching the struggle you would like to prevent, which you can't, 
But I think this is really has been our practice um, because partly because we're accustomed to starting things. And when you start something, you do everything, you know, you do everything that there is to do because there's nobody else around to do it and nobody knows how to do anything yet. Um, and you so, want to do it well. So you. Right. right. So you want to set things in place. You want to set things in motion that will be well-crafted, that will be well-designed. Um, so you're, you know, doing, um, and in the beginning, it's a small set of things, you know, when we had five, six people sitting with us, you know, you ring a bell, <laughs> that's basically it, you end a sitting period. Um, and then as we go along, we have um, the, this developmental process, which has been very organic. Um, and then, you know, then you're sort of in it with both feet and, you know, and you, um, you get in a situation where you're overcommitted and you don't really know how to uncommit. Yeah, it's, getting in is organic and natural. Getting out is it's not exactly out, but making a change. And you're saying organic is important. You and I never, and it's interesting because we, we were independent, but came together with the same approach, which is we never started with the build it and they'll come. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want to sit with me? Okay. They're coming. So what do they need? Yeah, we'll just do the next thing. And then uh, I, we need more toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> we need more, a little more incense. We, we do the next thing. And then suddenly, I didn't start out to start a Zen center. Or even when I came, when you uh, made your garage into a little apartment and I came over because I needed an office and you said, okay, I'm, I'll do this real estate thing. We didn't do that to start Appamata. No. We, I just came over because I needed an office and you and I were practicing together. And then yeah. one thing led to another. Yeah. And it's, um, I think um, having the willingness to explore and experiment has been one of the great gifts you've um, provided um, so that we could together try what we intuitively understood was going to be needed instead of following a model or a blueprint or some lofty vision or something. And yet we did train traditionally. Yes. We did take the blueprints we were given yeah. and we weren't iconoclast or rebellious, but we did seek out I remember taking long walks with Musang, for example, right. in Massachusetts, a person who has immense experience and great wisdom and talking about, you know, this stuff doesn't actually feel right, or this seems like the direction we want to go. Are we crazy? And uh, things like that, talking to Joko, sitting in there and <clears throat> so we sought good counsel. Yeah, and I think the other thing that happened was we were very, very fortunate in the kinds of people who were attracted to what we were doing. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, and the, many of them are on the screen now. Many of them are <laughs> on the screen now, that's right. You know, people keep coming with good hearts, good intentions, good aspirations, willing to work on their own conditioning, willing to support the Sangha. It's just, to me, this has been like an incredible, um, almost like, I could not have actually fantasized it. Um, or it seems like a great good fortune that I could never have imagined. That's right. That's what right. I'm grateful for and, and appreciate every day. But we have to do this together. I mean, you know, otherwise Flint and I could talk amongst ourselves, I guess, but we do that. <laughs> but, but it's just um, been such a thrill really to see a kind of validation of our trust in people and our um, sense that we could, we could respond organically rather than impose a template. So, yeah, and another piece of that, I think is just, I've always been surprised and appreciated when we come together and I might sheepishly, or you sort of the same way say, this is what I'm struggling with. And this is what I don't know. And we're just like, you too. <laughs> Very strange how often. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll, we'll have an answer for this because I'm, I'm stymied by it completely. You know, I, I don't know why I'm at this point. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's not like the best side of us. <laughs> we're like worrying about this or that, and I don't know what to do, 
but to have a partner where you can bring it knowing that you will not be shamed or humiliated or judged or embarrassed yeah but and to say yeah i, I get that it's so let's i don't know let's see what we can do it's been very helpful yeah and that may actually touch the next question you might want to read that one um, when you're at the doorway with your conditioning you can see it feel it know it you want to release it then that feeling hits you in the chest something's stopping you from moving over the precipice letting go at this point what has held you helped you to stay there and then hold the space to let go to really let go. It feels like it's a slippery fish. You think you have it, then it jumps back out of your hand, back into the waters of your being. How has the practice helped you at these points, supported you? What does that look like? Well, the, the first and sort of simplest thing are the offering ourselves to the forms. Mm -hmm. If I, I, I spent years and years and years in therapy and as a therapist before uh, I started training formally. And so I would do this kind of stuff from a psychological point of view and got some benefit from it. But when I was when I moved into a training situation and offered myself to the forms, it wasn't I've got to figure out my stuff. I just have to be aware. Uh, okay, I step into the Zendo with a foot away from the altar. I turn in this, offer myself to something that's not self-referenced and see what happens. And it's a mystery. How that began to shift. Was all that other stuff there? Yes. But it began to take a new shape. Does that make sense? <clears throat> it makes sense to me. And I'm, um, I'm thinking about... Um, and I'm forgetting the name of the teacher who was talking about this when he was in the monastery and he'd been there for like 15 years in the monastery and he was filled with self-loathing and he didn't know what to do about it. So he went to his teacher and he said, what do I do about this self-loathing? Now a therapist knows a certain approach to that, right? Um, and so there, there's a way to plunge into that in a therapeutic way. His teacher said to him, do 108 bows every day and simply say, I forgive you. So he started in this very mechanical way, you know, like, this is not going to do anything, you know, and for two weeks, he did 108 bows every single day saying, you know, I forgive you. And then on the at the end of two weeks, he broke down. And he started just sobbing, he just let, released it, just released it. Um, so I think it's something like that, what Flint is talking about, to, to follow the forms, um, is a kind of scaffold for our inner work. And we can lean against them, we can rest on them when we're stuck, when we are, um, when we recognize I can't let go of this conditioning, I can't. And the other possibility that worked um, pretty well for me in the monastery was to do meta practice for yourself, for your stuckness. Yeah. I just, you know. And as long as you feel the forms are ways to be a good student or a bad student, right and wrong, you'll never understand them. Because they're what Peg is saying. They're a generous invitation to relinquish and step through that door and find a new way without sorting it out in your head. That can be useful, but that's not that's not what they're for. And then the precepts also add to that scaffolding, of course. You want to take a look at the next one? Yeah. Thinking about the Heart Sutra mantra, gate, gate. Parasite. Parasite. I love that. <laughs> Parasite. <laughs> and silent illumination. How are they the same? or different? You know, technically, I wouldn't know what to say, because I don't understand all of the background of that. But they are pointing to something similar. Yeah. Um, so you have this um, gone, gone, gone beyond, as it's usually translated, gone completely beyond, hooray. Um, 
or, or as um, uh, Kobanchino said, falling apart, falling apart, falling completely apart. Um, the, all of the Mahayana literature, and it is vast, vast, vast body of literature, all points to exactly the same thing, which is distilled in crystalline form in the Heart Sutra into this realization of inherent emptiness and in silent illumination, it's exactly the same. Um, it's the dropping away of the, oh, I think the grasping and holding to constructs, um, mm -hmm. that falling away, even the construct of a self. Yeah, so, that's why I was mentioning the Heart Sutra in that first talk. Yes. And saying you could go through it mm -hmm. and sort of play with the translation uh, for your own, to, to reframe it as silent illumination because it's it's saying you know i always thought i could finally work this out i could finally get it mm -hmm. i could finally understand it. it my mind would finally change to one that would be awakened and that never ends and that's the wrong direction it doesn't happen that way yeah it's the falling away and stepping beyond not finally sorting it out. Yeah. yeah. And there's a big, big perspective that comes then uh, that th this morning when I walked out the front door and across the upper deck, it was dark, 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 and it was very still and very clear and cool. And as I looked to the south over the island of Lanai, there on the horizon was the Southern Cross. And I stopped and I was amazed to see it so clearly. And I turned the other way to go down the stairs and there was the Big Dipper. Mm -hmm. To be able to have a large enough perspective, just because of my situation, it's just an analogy, but um, I didn't have to think about anything that was some sort of embodied experiencing that goes beyond when it says beyond beyond even beyond that it's stepping away from everything you hold that you think will finally show you enlightenment So Clayton says, if during Zazen I'm working out a problem or writing a poem in my head, am I cheating myself of the full offering of Zazen? Um, you're doing something extremely common. Um, and all of us have been there. Um, if you've meditated even for 15 minutes in your life, you've had this experience, right? Of working things out in your head or... <clears throat> but I think one of the things that we um, gradually attune our bodies and minds to is Zazen is not a place for us to be um, caught up in conceptual thinking. These thoughts are going to pass through, but if we get bound up in it, um, then we've taken ourselves out of our present moment experience. And so it's not a, it's not cheating really, but it's, um, it's, uh, I would say, not the direction that we typically teach um, is helpful in Zazen. It's a fixation on anything, anything at all, a physical sensation or as something. Do you remember that kind of cheeky thing? I think that Joko said when somebody said, what do you do when you said Zazen? And she said, oh, I think about things. Mostly thinking. Mostly thinking. But <clears throat> what I took from that is the attitude in which she said it, she's saying something ordinary, you know, minds, minds think, but yeah. the attitude was, she wasn't caught by it. She wasn't caught by it. It was like, yeah, so what, I mean, she wasn't like, that's not a problem. Yeah. Indulging it would be, hating myself for doing it would be a problem. Those are extras that yeah. minds secrete thoughts like a gland or something, you know, it's not like, you're going to stop that. They will quiet at times for sure. 
I, I think it's, for me, it's like sort of like the difference between um, marching in a parade and sitting watching the parade. So you're like, oh, and there are the elephants and here come the Boy Scouts. You know, um, this, is, this, is what's, this is just what's moving through, right? Um, but if we wanna hold on to them, um, now we've taken ourselves out of um, this present moment awareness. Yeah, then you're at Mardi Gras fighting children for beads that are thrown to you. <laughs> Hurting old ladies, you know. <laughs> would know something about. <laughs> and unfortunately, we have all these fantastic questions and we're at the end of our time. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much.